Hi everyone, it's Jackie here. I just wanted to pop into your ears quickly to say that I know things are pretty crazy right now and that we're living in quite a different world, even since this conversation was recorded just a couple of weeks ago. Today's chat is partly about travel, which I know is not possible right now, but I wanted to proceed with it because it's also the story of someone who has an important message to share based on her own experiences of being a volunteer in a developing country and whose charity is among those suffering from a significant loss of funding at the moment. So I hope you enjoy this chat and that these tips on ethical travel can come in handy for you or someone you know when life returns to normal. Thanks for listening and now on to the show. Local people are the subject matter experts. They're the ones that know the community and culture well, and they are there for the long term. And if we don't have local people running their own organisations, it's just not sustainable. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Sally Hetherington, the CEO of Human and Hope Australia, a charity that raises funds to support and empower local communities in Cambodia and educates people here in Australia about the negative impacts of the volunteerism industry. She's also written a book titled It's Not About Me, which details her own experiences as a volunteerist and her journey to discovering why these types of volunteer abroad trips could be doing more harm than good. Sally's story starts out like many young Australians. At the age of 25, she set off to Siem Reap, a popular tourist destination in Cambodia, to volunteer at a local school. It was intended to be a short-term career break from her corporate job, but nearly 10 years on, she has followed a very different path in the charity sector. And last year, her work was recognised with an Order of Australia medal. Here's my chat with Sally Hetherington. So Sally, I wanted to start with your family background because I noticed that you've got relatives in Myanmar and your grandmother was born there. So can you tell us a bit about that connection? So that's a really good question. My grandmother was born in Myanmar, in Rangoon, in 1928, and she lived in a middle-class family, had a good life, but during World War II, she and her family had to escape in the middle of the night and they ended up in India. And that's where she met my grandfather, who was from India, and I don't think that she ever went back to Myanmar, but in the 2000s, Maybe 2006, my mum found our relatives in Myanmar, so I still have cousins there, and then we've had we have a really good relationship with them, and we go and visit. And I love Myanmar. It's it's really good to know that personal connection. And just the other day, I met someone from Myanmar, and just to be able to say, "Oh, I've got some Myanmar blood in me," just makes it more exotic. But it's such a beautiful country. Beautiful. But you yourself grew up in the Newcastle area, just north of Sydney, I believe. And I saw that you actually studied a Bachelor of Business at Newcastle University. So where did that interest in business come from and what did you plan to do work-wise with that degree? I have always liked to make money, which is um, it's weird that I've ended up in the charity sector. <laughs> <laughs> but ever since I was young, I had 
little businesses at home like Sally show bags and I would stuff all of my old crap into a bag and try and <laughs> sell it to someone for a dollar but they could only borrow the show bag. They just oh. had to pay the money. Or Sally's bank where people would pay me a dollar to keep their money safe and then I'd give them five cents interest. Or I used to have, I love naming businesses after myself, Sally's Kitchen and Sally's Cafe. So I would get my parents to buy all the ingredients. I would get them to cook the food and I would charge them for And so I really just always loved making money and I thought, oh, when I grow up I want to own my own bookshop or I want to be an entrepreneur, which is why I then took a lot of business subjects at school and went and studied business at university. And when I was at university, it was all right. I don't think that I gave it as much effort as I should have and It was a couple of years after that when I decided I don't really want to be in business, but those business skills that I did learn from the degree, like human resources and management, that has really helped me in life with some foundations with every role I've been in. So it really was beneficial for me. Mm. And what kind of work did you end up going into when you finished uni? So right after uni, I moved to Sydney because that's what a lot of people from Newcastle do, move to Sydney or the UK. And I was working in financial administration at Colonial First State. So that was my first real job. And for the next three and a half years, I progressed. So I was working in financial administration. I moved into a training role. Then I took a secondment as a personal assistant and team coordinator, then moved back into training, knowing that I'd be taking a career break to move to Cambodia. But I, what I really loved about the corporate environment, even though that's not where I want to be right now in my life is that at Colonial First State, they were so supportive. My bosses were always like, what can we do to help you grow and develop? What courses can we send you on? They would always support my charity work or my colleagues would come to my events, donate to my fundraisers because they saw that that was my passion. And they thought, okay, how can we incorporate that into your role in the business? So it was a really supportive workplace to be at. So where had your interest in charity come from? What kind of things were you doing back then? So when I moved to Sydney in 2008, I had no friends. I was just starting over and I ran into somebody I knew from Newcastle and she introduced me to Junior Chamber International, which is called JCI, and that's networking for young business professionals. And I joined them, but from that, I then made the move into Rotaract, which is Rotary International, those service clubs who do those amazing barbecues, but for under 30s. Right. And so that was what started my my feeling for helping people because through that I started volunteering at a homeless shelter every month. And then at the end of 2008 was my first trip to Myanmar and it was after the cyclone had happened and 130,000 people had died and they wasn't able to get help into the country due to these restrictions and it just I thought my life could have easily been this way because of my cultural background this could have been me let me try and help so that was when I started to do a fundraiser to help there and that really was when I knew what I wanted to do was to be a global citizen and eventually end up in the charity sector so that's why I started volunteering a lot in Sydney so I could get that experience and Help people, but also feel good about yourself because charity work, it's self-fulfilling, isn't it? It is, yes. Well, I have a background in the not-for-profit sector myself, so I understand that switch from corporate to moving across. Um, And then I guess for you, a moment did come in 2011. So you'd done that trip 
to Myanmar, which was your first trip, you said. So even though you had that background, you only first went there in 2008? Yes. Right. So that moment came in 2011. Um, So you'd been in at Colonial First State for a while, but you decided to pack in your job and you bought a one-way ticket to Cambodia. I think you were 25 at the time. Mm -hmm. So what prompted that move and, and what did you set off to do? So I had been to Cambodia the past two years. So my first trip was 2009 and I didn't know anything about the country, but I just saw that they had these amazing temples, which is why I wanted to go get some good photos, experience that culture, especially after my trip to Myanmar the year before. So I went to Cambodia and it was there that I realized how horrific their recent history was with the Khmer Rouge. So for people listening who don't know about this, went on for a long time, but the main parts of this was between 1975 and 1979, there were a few people in Cambodia who wanted to start from year one and turn it into a classless society. And so cities were emptied, uh, the educated were killed immediately because they wanted people to not fight back. And over the course of four years, approximately 2 million people, which was a quarter of the population, were killed. And that was through torture, starvation, execution, disease. It was just horrific. And then even after they were technically freed in 1979, this civil war still went on into the early 2000s. So it's a very recent history. Mm -hmm. And when I was there and you go to those tourist sites which show where people did meet their untimely ends, that just, it was a moment for me. I thought, how could Cambodians do this to Cambodians and how could a country rebuild and recover? And I just had so many thoughts going through my head. And so I thought, okay, I want to help Cambodia. And a girl on my tour group said, I want to help too. So what we assumed was the best way to help was to go and visit an orphanage. Right. So we didn't even make an appointment. We got into a tuk-tuk and we said, hey, take us to an orphanage to see the kids. And then we traveled out into a rural area and visited an orphanage and I thought, wow, this is what I want to be doing. I can help as a volunteer. So that's why when I came back to Australia after that short holiday, I made plans to go and be a volunteer for a month. Uh, So I was a voluntourist, which is a term a lot of people would hear nowadays, and that's short-term or one-off volunteering overseas. And so for one month I was at a residential centre for former street children and Every time I tell this story, I honestly, I can't remember what I did. I think I did a little bit of teaching. I did a lot of teaching the Hannah Montana dance, but (laughs) the biggest impact that I had, it was on myself. It wasn't actually on those kids because looking back, what I realized what they needed was consistent Cambodian role models, not me, a stranger coming in and helping them. But I thought, this is amazing. Because, you know, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. But that's why in 2011, I did take a career break and I was intending to move to Cambodia for 15 months and to be a volunteer coordinator so that I could help manage the volunteers like myself who went to Cambodia. And that's how I ended up there. Right. Okay. Very long story. (laughs) So you'd had some experience of being over there previously. I mean, as you say, a lot of people with the best of intentions, do go to countries like Cambodia. Um, I know in Bali, lots of places where you can visit an orphanage and it seems like a nice thing to do. And 
what I've learned from having worked um, in the international aid sector for a long period of time is that it's certainly not the right thing to do and you and you wouldn't do that in a country like Australia. You wouldn't just turn up at a school or any sort of care institution for children and have no qualifications and have had no police check or even if you've had a police check, it's not always about the most dire thing that can go wrong. But, yeah, certainly when you're a young 20-something, it's not really crossing your mind. So mm. um, so when you did go back in that 2011 period, you said it was a volunteer coordinator role at a school? Yes, at a school for disadvantaged children. Right. So what did that role look like? That was taking sick kids to hospital. It was coordinating the volunteers through induction, making sure that they were doing their jobs. It was filling in with teachers when they weren't available. It was doing administration. It was a lot of things that, honestly, a Cambodian could have done my role, but I was doing it for free. So that was a big thing for me, thinking, hey, you know what? this role could be for with undertaken by a Cambodian. Why am I doing it? That's what I discovered as time went along. I see. And you said you were also managing so-called volunteers mm. in that role. So over the period of time you were doing it, what were some of the realisations that you started to come to or some of the negative impacts that you were starting to see? Mm. For the first few weeks I thought this is amazing, but I did have a volunteer come to me and say, Sally, I'm pre- I'm feeling pretty dissatisfied. I feel like the work I'm doing, the teacher that I'm with in class, the local Cambodian teacher, they know what they're doing. They can do it. And at that time, I tried to justify it and say, oh, no, but you, it's good for you to be here. But then a few months later, I realized, wow, she was right. Because what was happening was there was this revolving door of voluntourists and They had to work in a classroom with a Cambodian teacher, but then the Cambodian teachers who were totally qualified were becoming disempowered and then they were becoming complacent because it's like, what's the point? Somebody else is coming in and doing my job. And we were working with vulnerable children who have unstable lives and then you're throwing another unstable thing into the mix, which is people coming in and out of their lives constantly, forming those relationships with them making promises sometimes, and then leaving. And I realized this is actually contributing to attachment issues and instability for these kids. And then also there was no long-term sustainability because I realized that local people are the subject matter experts. They're the ones that know the community and culture well, and they are there for the long term. And if we don't have local people running their own organizations, it's just not sustainable. So take, for example, right now, tourism and everything, it's down in CM Reap. So there would be less volunteers going to work in organizations. But for a school like Uh, Human and Hope, which we'll talk about in a moment, the organization I built up, that is entirely run by Cambodians, so they're not affected by that. Once the schools reopen after the ministry says that they can, business will go on as usual because they are the consistent role models. They're not going to be affected by this. It's sustainable. Mm. So how long did you end up staying in that volunteer role for? About 14 months, I think. Right. So, I mean, did you have some positive experiences during those first that first year you were there or did it sort of become quite quickly something that wasn't what you were hoping or expecting? I feel that I felt really important in my role. 
I felt like I was a core contributor and that the future of Cambodia was in my hands. Uh, And looking back, I really regret feeling that way because it's, it's hard to talk about because it's hard to explain how my values were just changed and how everything I thought and everything that had been sold to me by these voluntourism companies, it was just shattered. And so you have to really make that hard decision. Do I continue with this? Do I go back home or do I try and fix my mistakes? And I suppose it would be the same if you were working in a company and you discovered that what they were doing caused deaths. You know, this wasn't as serious, but we were playing with people's lives and we have to be really careful with what we're doing. And, yeah, it's it's hard to talk about, to really make people understand what was going through my head when this was happening. Well, I think, yeah, and, and being in that younger age compared to now when you have the hindsight, it's mm. it's different. I mean, it's such a rite of passage for so many young Australians to go and do something like mm. that. I mean, I did it myself at a similar age. I think I was 25 when I took up a three-month volunteer stint over in um, South America, actually, in Brazil, doing a lot of the things that you spoke about. So, I mean, we at that in that particular program, we lived with local families in three different areas. We yeah, we taught English. We um, painted the children's ward of a hospital, I remember, mm. and I remember being there at the time thinking, I don't know if this is what I had in mind mm. when I came over. You know, a lot of this is with hindsight, but at the time I did remember just thinking, yeah, it definitely felt like it was much more set up for our enjoyment as the volunteers, which was partly, to be honest, why I chose that particular program. It had, you know, I liked the idea of living with local families. And, and you know, I think that cross-cultural connection does provide some two-way benefits. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of travel involved in amongst doing the volunteer work. It's certainly something I think that even though we're becoming a bit more aware of now, certainly when I was younger and even probably my older nieces' generations, it's still something that's put out there as a great thing to do. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation today because I know that people really want to have good intentions Mm. and want to know the right thing to do and it's great that you're able to share your experience to help other people think about it a little bit more. Definitely. I think that's why people resonate with my message and they're willing to listen is because I made the mistake and I want to be that role model for people to learn from. So I don't want people to have to make the same mistake as me because like I said, we do play with people's lives and the people in Cambodia aren't someone who we need to learn a lesson from by doing bad things inadvertently. You know, we can learn from people like me who have made those mistakes and try not to make them ourselves. So you mentioned there came a point when you were in Cambodia where you um, came across an organisation, a local NGO called Human and Hope Association, which was run by a group of Cambodian volunteers. Um, My understanding was that they were providing nighttime English classes at a, a, a school of sorts. So can you share a bit about that experience and how did that become a bit of a turning point for you? So one of my Cambodian colleagues at the school I was originally working for said, hey, Sally, come to my uh, house for lunch one weekend and then I'll also take you to this school, which was, it was the weekend, so it was close at the time. But she said, I've been helping out with this school. My friends founded it. Let's go check it out. So we went there and it was this two-story building at this huge pagoda. This pagoda had cost $2 million US dollars to build. And I'm you just see that and then you look at all the shacks and the poverty around you. It's just incredible. And 
as she told me more about it, it really it made me realize this is where my calling was. This was how I could fix my mistake because this school had been set up for two hours in the evening because a few villagers had said, hey, there's no English education in our community. Let's do something about it. So it was Cambodian volunteers, but also foreign volunteers teaching for two hours in the evening in the hopes that they could increase the skills and the capability of the community so they could take advantage of that good tourism sector in Siemri by getting jobs as tour guides in hotels, in restaurants. And originally I said, hey, I'll help them set up a website. But as I thought more about it, I thought, no, this is where I'm supposed to be, but for a limited amount of time. So working, we were talking with the local team who are all volunteers and we made the decision that I would join them and we would develop it into a registered NGO, a reputable NGO, a trustworthy NGO, and I would leave once it was in a good position. So those were the two conditions as we would stop the foreign volunteer program because the Cambodians needed to see their worth and their ability because for the longest time they've been taught, hey, we can't develop without the input of foreigners coming in. And it's just about providing an empowering environment. And then, of course, the second condition was that I would make myself redundant so it could be entirely run by Cambodians going forward. Mm. And did that seem quite a novel concept to them because of what you said, this pattern of foreign volunteers coming in? Yeah, it was a hard sell at first. Uh, It took a lot of commitment. But from the very beginning, to have that goal in mind that I was going to make myself redundant, that's what kept us on track. And that's where you could properly take those steps to know what needed to be done in order to achieve that outcome, which is why then we were really focused on succession planning, getting uh, paid salaries for some of the Cambodian volunteers to become staff members and making sure that their confidence increased and that they had the support network so that they could properly run their programs and achieve great outcomes for their community. Mm. You ended up working with Human and Hope in Cambodia for four years. So what did that process of building it up so that it could be entirely run by locals look like? Um, And I'm sure there were many highs and lows over that time. So can you recall some of the journey that you went on? Yes. So to begin with, we had no money. Right. And I had moved to Cambodia, I think, with 10000 Australian dollars back when the exchange rate was dollar for dollar. Oh, please increase again. It's so depressing. <laughs> and so I had a limited income and I thought, oh, my God, we need to get in money quick smart. To me, I compare it to being a startup because startups, they have to invest their time and money and try and get the money invested to be able to build and to grow. So the first step was getting a donor to fund a $100 a month salary for me, which didn't even cover my rent, and $150 for the man who was the managing director at the time. And so through word of mouth, personal connections, we were able to secure that relationship and get that money. But then it was begging and pleading my friends and family in Australia to start sending money to us through my bank account in Australia. Don't worry, we're not dodgy like that anymore. It was just because we weren't registered yet and the process to register a charity in Cambodia is very, it's not straightforward. Right. It depends at different levels of government what happens. So that's what we were doing. So then eventually we were able to promote two of the local volunteers to part-time employment, which was on ve- we were all on very, very low salaries. Uh, and but that was then a team 
a core team of four people. And with that, we were able to think, okay, what programs do we want? And then that's where it developed. Yeah. Right. So what kind of programs do you focus on now? So now it's a three-prong approach because we believe in helping whole families to move out of poverty. So the onus just isn't on that child or isn't on that parent. They all have the skills and knowledge, which could be different skills and knowledge to move out of poverty. So we've got education programs, which is English language education. As I said, Seam Reap's a tourism town. And also if those kids do eventually head to university, they need to know English. Also Khmer language. So that's the official language of Cambodia. So 20% of Cambodians over the age of 15 are illiterate. And there's many different reasons for that. A lot of those kids aren't in school. But even we recognize there were a lot of kids in school in grade three and still didn't know how to read and write. So these supplementary language classes make sure that they do become literate so then they can progress at public school because otherwise they're just going to drop out. Mm. And then there's preschool education, which is for the five-year-olds in the community who are the poorest of the poor because otherwise they would have to stay at home uh, unsupervised or go to work with their parents. And there's a lot of issues with safety when they go to work with their parents. But by coming to HHA for two hours a day, they brush their teeth for the first time in their life, for the first time in five years. That's every single student. They learn how to work as a team. They learn to read and write in Khmer. So when they go to public school for the next year, they are already literate, which is amazing because a few years ago, one of our preschool classes graduated, transitioned to public school, and for the first six months, they didn't have a teacher at public school. Right. So they would just turn up every day and do nothing. Wow. But fortunately, they already had the Khmer language skills and we're continuing to study at HHA. Then there's a library, there's hygiene classes, which is incredibly important considering the spread of disease there. There's art class, there's living values, and we are addressing social issues that have been identified in the community and trying to make students care about the environment and about equality and not discriminating against people. And our latest program, which we got funding from Lush Australia for those charity pots, oh, yeah. is a student development program, and it's teaching students to be good leaders with a focus on the environment because – Cambodia's political climate, it's a bit questionable. So we know that change from the top down, it can be very difficult, but we can make grassroots change, which is why we can build the future leaders of the community through this program. Grassroots change is so important. Mm. And then we've got the uh, vocational training program for adults. So this program is really amazing. It's for 12 months that the women study sewing, business skills, life skills, farming, and this program reduces domestic violence in, in the families. It increases income. It's taken 31 women out of poverty. It just it makes them active players in their community and they're showing we can be role models. Mm. You know, don't discredit us. Don't think because we're women that we can't do something. We can. And then, of course, the third prong is our community development programs, which is family farm training. So then villagers can utilize what land they have to grow chemical-free vegetables, improving their nutrition. It's community workshops addressing main social issues. And it used to be university scholarships, but that was a program we could make redundant because our staff were then earning eventually ample income to pay for their own education. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you're working in Sien Reap, as you said. So this is, is this in one particular community that you're operating? So it covers about five communes 
I'd say a commune is like a suburb in Australia. So there are five key communes that we target. Right, okay. So the local staff are from those areas and this has provided local employment for them as well now? Definitely. And for the roles where skills or education aren't required, we always make sure to go and hire from the poorest families. So that's why our security guards and our sustainability assistant all come from really poor families in the community and they've all been able to move out of poverty with this employment Mm -hmm. and involve their families in the program as well. That's great. And you did mention that you were able to make yourself redundant, which was the goal. So in 2016 that happened and you moved back to Australia around that time and you're now the CEO of the Australian fundraising arm of Human and Hope. So what does your role look like now? My role is concentrating on fundraising and advocacy. I never wanted to be a fundraiser, but as a lot of founders would know, when you really are so passionate about something, you just have to take it on. So it's been a real learning journey for me personally to know how to relate to people, how to build those relationships and try and get those funds in. We still need funds if any listeners want to help out. (laughs) (laughs) But also that advocacy is really important because in Australia, especially school students and university students are targeted by volunteerism companies who are promising them this amazing life-changing experience. And yes, it is life-changing for the students going over, but we have to think about all these unintended consequences. So I'm lucky to be able to get out to universities and workplaces and service clubs and talk to them about my personal journey and then discuss why is building a house in Cambodia possibly not the best idea? Why is going and playing with kids in an orphanage in Nepal not the best idea? Why should you not go and teach English? And so we discuss those and it really opens up people's minds. I would say for every 10 people I talk to, probably eight get it. The other two still want to do it. And I I do understand that because it is very fulfilling to go and volunteer in a country. I totally get that. But we need to be not putting ourselves first, which is why the book which was published last year that I wrote is called It's Not About Me. And I miss my team in Cambodia all the time and I often wish that I was still back there. But making myself redundant was, was, was what was best for the community. Mm. because it wasn't about me. It was about a bigger picture. Mm. And how often do you get back to Cambodia now? Once or twice a year. Uh, I do miss my team a lot, so I love to go and visit them. And also I'm the host of our Purpose and Philanthropy Field Trips to Siem Reap. And these take up to 10 people every trip and it's a really immersive experience where you do learn about the culture, but you also learn about the resilience and the resourcefulness of the Cambodian people without having to participate in voluntourism or poverty tourism. We're changing that narrative. And the more people that we can show ethical tourism is the way to go, the more that we can change this opinion that voluntourism is the only way to help people overseas. Mm. And so we support social enterprises, the participants fundraise for HHA, They also get to have dinner with HHA and that's the real learning point for them is when they go, they talk with the staff and they say, we get it. They are much better placed to solve the issues in their own community than we ever could be. Well, let's talk about some of those recommended alternatives to volunteerism because, you know, as we said earlier, people generally do have good intentions. They want 
you know, they do want to have these cross-cultural experiences and they want to make a positive difference. Um, I mean, you mentioned one of the offerings from Human and Hope, but for people listening, what would be some of your top recommendations to be an ethical traveller? So number one is always do your research when you are going overseas. Being an ethical traveller is supporting real local businesses, making sure that the money gets to the people on the ground who actually own those businesses because that could make a difference if their kid going to school or not. It's also making sure that you're respecting the culture when you go there, act uh, appropriately, dress appropriately, just search online. There are so many tips for you there. It's about supporting social enterprises if possible because social enterprises are a great way for you to have the impact on disadvantaged people and their training and development without being invasive or disempowering. So go shop, dine, stay at social enterprises. That's very helpful. And I would say support not-for-profit organizations when you go overseas, but do it in an informed way. So do your research first to make sure that they are a legitimate organization. So check out their accounts, check out the governance, make sure that they don't just offer poverty tourism or volunteerism opportunities. And when you do decide to support an organization, when you go overseas, make sure that you're giving them what they want, not what you think that they need. So Instead of turning up with uh, a few soccer balls, maybe they actually need books, specific books for the students, or maybe they actually just need money. So make sure that you're working with the organisations to fulfil their needs. Yeah, I think in this desire to help, <laughs> we can sometimes just get a little bit caught up um, and, and just not having that, that understanding. It is about educating people. Definitely. And I always say if you do want to give supplies where possible, buy it locally because you are supporting the local economy that way as well. Yeah. yeah. And I did want to ask, I mean, we also see long-term skilled volunteering positions come up. So an example would be through the Australian government's volunteer program. And in those cases, you're actually contributing your skills and expertise. So they tend to be, it might be six months up to two years often. Um, you know, a local organisation might have identified a specialist skill that they're missing or that they need for their growth and development. So what's your view on those sort of more long-term skilled positions and how are they different perhaps to volunteerism? So long-term skilled volunteering is definitely different to volunteerism. However, I do know some organisations who have taken on those long-term skilled volunteers and it just hasn't worked out for numerous reasons. And I'll go through that. But I also want to point out that some organisations, they don't actually really need those long-term skilled volunteers because, for example, Human and Hope, they don't accept any foreign volunteers at all because they have their processes in place and they're not a hospital who needs to learn those latest techniques and they already know how to fundraise and we also support them with fundraising. So a lot of organisations should have those processes in place. But with long-term volunteering, I always say, first check, are you actually needed? Could that information that you want to pass on or give be fulfilled by a local staff member? Or could they, a local staff member, learn that information from a local university? Because we should always be going for the local approach first. And if you, the second question is, if you are going there to train staff members, 
is there succession planning in place? Because if you're only training one staff member and that staff member leaves, what happens with that information? Do they need another long-term volunteer to come on in? Mm. So it's about making sure that information internally is passed on from staff member to staff member, which is what happens at Human and Hope. Also, do your governance to make sure that it is a legitimate organisation. If it's a government program, they would have gone through all of the vetting first, but just be careful with that and make sure that you are not working directly with the community members. You should always be at the back. It should always be the local people at the front leading. They are the face of the organisation. In the, When we were in Cambodia, I always tried to stay at the back because I never wanted the local people to associate me with human and hope because that could just change the dynamics of relationships in the community. We needed to show that, hey, no, this is led by local Cambodians and they're the ones that you can trust. A lot of the staff have been there for nine years. You know, that's real longevity and that's what makes their program successful is when they can spend that time building the trust. Mm. So, yeah, those are a few questions to ask, but also check out my website, sallyheatherington.com, and I do go into further information about that or my book as well. Yeah, well, you mentioned the book, um, <clears throat> It's Not About Me. And just quickly, I mean, who did you write that book for and what do you hope to achieve with it? I partly wrote it for myself, to be honest, even though it is called It's Not About Me. But I, it was a long time that I was in Cambodia. I went through a lot of stuff, which a lot of it's in the book, a lot of it isn't in the book as well. But for me, I needed to get it out on paper. But I also really wanted to target two people, which was our donors who some of our donors have been with us five, six years. And it was sort of a tribute to them to show what their support when we were doing something a bit radical by not having foreign volunteers, what their support has led to this locally run community center. But also it's for people who are considering the best way to help overseas and to try and get them to rethink that and just challenge their beliefs. And that's by sharing these stories of what's going on. And I often have people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that Portuguese lady came and just walked into a classroom saying that she wanted (laughs) to teach the kids a song in Portuguese. And oh, why did these Japanese tourists come and turn up and want to face paint the children? Those sorts of stories gets people really thinking about their actions, which is pretty much the aim. Mm. So do you feel like we are starting to see a bit of a positive shift in people's understanding around this issue? I would like to say yes wholeheartedly, but for every one of me who's speaking out about it, there's 50 volunteerism companies. Every day people are asking me about different companies they've come across and there's so many I can't even keep up. And because a lot of them do get to go into universities and pitch these, I can't be everywhere. I am not feeling optimistic right now. We need to get more people on board to spread this message. Mm. And you received an Order of Australia medal last year for your work in this area and your service to the international community. What did that award mean to you? (sighs) It was a bit of validation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I felt so proud, especially to be a sort of young recipient of the award and it's added a lot of credibility to my work, I can say, because awards do that, especially one which is as prestigious as this. So I felt really proud and our managing director from Cambodia, he was actually in Australia and leaving Australia the day that it was announced because we'd sponsored him to come out here for my book launch. So it was really proud 
to share that moment with him because he and I have been on this journey from the very beginning. Mm. Very proud. Congratulations. And you mentioned that you are back in Australia now. I was just interested to ask how you found that transition of moving back because a lot of people talk about, you know, having a um, culture shock or however you like to describe it, moving to another country, particularly a developing country. Um, How did you find the move back? It was definitely a reverse culture shock. And my partner, he's Cambodian, he moved here with me. So he was experiencing culture shock while I was experiencing reverse culture shock. (laughs) But it was really good to have someone to go through that with me because I have had Australian friends move back from Cambodia since then and they also struggle as well. It's just such a different environment and to see what people get worried over compared to what people worry about in Cambodia, uh, it's just... Yeah, your life's put in a lot of perspective. Mm. But I do love that I can go and get clean drinking water from a tap. And when stuff happens here, like the water goes out or electricity goes out, that's fine. I dealt with five-day electricity blackouts in Cambodia. You know, it makes you more resilient. I have gotten into the Australian way a bit more, a bit spoiled, but those experiences never leave you. Mm. And what are some of the things that you miss about Cambodia? I miss coconuts, fresh coconuts, (laughs) (laughs) which are a lot cheaper than they are in Australia. I miss my team. I really miss them so much. And I miss the ease of getting places, even though the roads are terrible in Cambodia. I could just ride my motorbike right up to the front of the supermarket and You know, it would take me half an hour to ride to work in Cambodia, but in Australia it takes a lot longer. And I do miss the temples because I just, I'm in love with the temples. I love the history of Cambodia and what people were able to build so long ago. Well, if that's tempted some people to go and visit Cambodia, you did mention that you've got your um, your ethical trip coming up. Are there, what other ways can people get involved with Human and Hope? So you can purchase our handicrafts that are online at hopeonpurpose.org and these are made by women who study in the 12-month sewing program. They make them at their homes while watching over their kids so they get an income and the proceeds support our organisation. You can also host us to have a pop-up market stall at your your workplace so we can bring these ethical handicrafts to you in Sydney or Canberra, Newcastle. You can also become a monthly donor because $10 a month is all it takes to provide a kid with quality education. And of course, in April, we are doing our walk to Cambodia. So that's where we are collectively walking the distance virtually, not literally, (laughs) to Cambodia from Australia. And it's a great way to get fit. There are cool little badges along the way. We've got organised social walks. And this is a way to raise funds for education of kids. And look, we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast, which you've certainly done in your life and career. What would you say has been your bravest moment? And how did you find the courage to go for it? I think my bravest moment was when I decided to stay in Cambodia after leaving that organisation and committing to spending, I wasn't sure how many more years there, to make sure that my goal was achieved and that I didn't have an income coming in, that there was so much uncertainty in this foreign country. But I did it because we've only got one life, according to my religion, not in Cambodia, of course. (laughs) But that was a really brave moment for me. And I'm so proud that I did that. Mm. And how did you overcome perhaps any doubts or fears that you had to, to keep going? My passion always gets me through. You know, life is full of ups and downs. But with when you've got your passion to keep you going, that you've just got that end goal, and you just have to keep focused on it. And that's what keeps you going.
And who are some of the women who you look to and who inspire you? I really love, this is a bit cliched, Michelle Obama. Yes. (laughs) Please, yes. (laughs) I just think that she has integrity. I feel that she's transparent. She's calm. She really faces pressure really well. I think that she's a fantastic role model. Mm. And she's written a fantastic book. And I know you're a big fan of books. How many have you read this year? This year I've only read 47 so far, I think. Last year I read 170. My goodness. Yeah. (laughs) I'm getting into the Stephen King books this year, which means it will take me one month to read one of his books. Wow. So 47, we are only in mid-March. It's pretty good going so far. Some were short. (laughs) And look, if there's anyone out there listening who's thinking, you know, perhaps they'd like to take the leap into the not-for-profit sector or support local communities in developing countries in a positive way, do you have any final tips for them? Do your research. Always do your research. Don't jump into something, which is something that I always did in the past. Take a calm and informed approach to anything that you decide to do. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Sally. Thank you. That was Sally Hetherington, CEO of Human and Hope Australia, which you can find at humanandhope.org. We'll include a link and a limited time special offer for our listeners in the show notes, along with more information about the virtual Walk to Cambodia, which kicks off in April. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.